When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a story of an Irish writer who, as a person, was gentle, humorous, kind and self-deprecating. I was born a myopic, fatty, apprehensive bundle of human expectancy, he once wrote. He regarded the death of Parnell and the execution of the 1916 leaders as two of the most emotional moments of his life. But all through that life, a battle raged within him concerning his own identity, his Irishness. His two autobiographical works were called, significantly, I Chose Denmark and American Rainbow, and his disillusionment with his native country's use of its newly gained independence gradually became more acute. Journalist Klaus Toxwig, a nephew of his wife Sinje, recalls an incident which took place in Denmark when Francis was in his 70s. I, I remember uh, introducing him once to um, the then-American ambassador in Copenhagen as the Irish-American writer, and he said, he said, you can drop the Irish, I'm an American. So he... he, he but there must have been bitterness there. It's, a, it's, a, it's just not something they talked about, certainly not to me. Francis Hackett was a gifted writer and journalist whose output included literary criticism, history, historical biography, autobiography and fiction. One historical biography in particular, Henry VIII, published in 1929, achieved for the writer worldwide fame with sales eventually exceeding three-quarters of a million copies. His literary reputation at that time was very high, particularly in America, but now he is largely forgotten, undeservedly so in the opinion of his fellow Kilkenny man, Hubert Butler. I thought he was an extremely good writer and a very much under-praised he hasn't had half the credit that is due for all that he did, both his historical works and also his fiction. I think, though the one I know and like best is The Green Lion, I think he has other books that are equally good uh, and equally undervalued. Well, he's a tremendous mastery of dialogue and he, he's considering most of his best-known books were written 50 or 60 years ago, I think he uh, he comes up to modern standards. I think he none of his books now seem to me out of date. They are perhaps rather longer and more rambling than the modern novel is. But I think the the point of view is an entirely modern point of view. Francis Hackett was born in Kilkenny City, thirty-four Patrick Street, in the year eighteen eighty-three. He was the eighth of nine children and the sixth son born to Dr John Byrne Hackett and Bridget Dohoney. James Delahanty traces the family background of the Hacketts. Well, their father, of course, was Dr John Byrne Hackett. He was born in Johnstown, County Kilkenny. The family came from Cork, from Middleton originally. And they had Father uh, Matthew, as a matter of fact, in the family. And he, John Byrne Hackett married Bridget Dohoney. She was the daughter of a well-to-do farmer of Listolerone. And they had uh, six boys and three girls in the family. 
the, the boys were Willie, Jack, Bat, Dom, Edmund and Frank. And the girls were Kathleen, Francis and Florence. He was a dispensary doctor in the workhouse hospital appointment. He became a coroner. He was second surgeon and medical officer to the Urban District Council. And then he also had his his own practice and was very well thought of. I think he was an MD, as distinct from an MB. Uh, bearded man, the usual style of those Victorian gentlemen. And uh, his wife was a very strong-minded uh, woman. One got the impression that, well, he wasn't exactly henpecked, but she was, I think, very much a dominant person in the house. Francis's mother, Bridget Dohoney, was a farming stock coming from the Tullerone area about ten miles outside Kilkenny. Her grandniece, May Dohoney, lives now on one of the two farms still owned by the family. Well, this is the house where Bridget Dohoney was reared, and the houses around the are they're all still the same as they were in her day, except they were renovated a bit over the years. And that's why they're in a good state of repair now. And John Dohoney and Philip Dohoney live here now, the big grandnevies of Bridget Dohoney's. Well, my grandfather, Ned Dohoney, was living there then, and I'm sure he had three brothers and three sisters, one Mrs Hackett. And we were told that she met Dr Hackett while he was out shooting with some friends on the farm at British, where I live now, and she was milking a cow on a summer's evening, and he's supposed to have fell in love with her, and they got married some time later. And I'm told she was married at 19 years of age, and she was still going to school. And after she got married, she still continued going to school for two more years, so as she'd be better educated for a doctor's wife in them times. Well, Francis seemed to have been the favourite in Lys, and he was always out on holidays. I think the mother liked to have him come out to the country in them days, not to have him around the town, getting into mischief and that. But I'm told he was a wild boy from the city in them times. And how would you define wild? Well, they always said he was up to every mischief. And I can remember my father telling me one day he was sent with the dinner to the men down here in British and he broke his grandmother's dish, which was a very old dish, and he came back and said, I broke grandmother's dish, and he was delighted about it. But he was hunted home to Kilkenny that day and told not to come back again, but he did return. The Dohanys then farmed over 400 acres of land, and in his autobiographical novel, The Green Lion, much of the action takes place on that farm. They were very well off, and in their home today still hangs large and impressive photographic portraits of his uncles and grandmother, touched up with paint as was the custom at the time. Dr Hackett was an ardent and unswerving supporter of Parnell, and all in all a man of very definite views. He occasionally dined in the local military barracks, but when a toast to the Queen was drank, it was accepted that he did not join in. He worked extremely hard at his profession, but at the same time had a passion for hunting, shooting and fishing. He belonged to the exclusive county club, smoked Havana cigars, but drank very little. And, with such a large family to support, money was sometimes in short supply, and economies had to be undertaken. Florence used to have a story about a dinner party which Dr Hackett gave, and when the the cook brought in this big tureen of, and put it in front of Dr Hackett, she said in a stage whisper, go easy on the soup, doctor. <laughs> so, and I think it was the case too, in fact I know from uh, one of the Smiddicks, who were the, uh, one of the other great families of course in the town, uh, Mrs Norman, she told me how the, 
they were very wild family, those boys, and half the time they seemed to be fed in other houses, not in their own house. So I should imagine there was a certain amount of stringency. And also Dr Hackett was a very charitable man in the way of looking after the poor and that. He really was a, um, a devoted uh, Christian, I suppose you'd say, in that manner. I, I doubt if uh, he sent very much in the way of fee, a demand for fees out to people. But Dr Hackett's support for Parnell, particularly at the time of the split, was the greatest influence in the young boy's life. When the miners in Castle Comer threw lime in Parnell's eye, it was Dr Hackett who came to the rescue. And later, at a meeting in Carlow, a sharp stone meant for Parnell struck Dr Hackett instead, smashing his glasses and eventually causing him to lose the sight of an eye. And when the parish priest from the altar in Kilkenny denounced the Parnellites, he walked out of the church, taking with him his wife and family. These mutual expressions of hostility between the family and the church had a deep effect on the young Francis, and his attempts to separate his feelings towards the clergy and his feelings towards religious belief was to become a major preoccupation with him in the early part of his life. Despite financial difficulties and the differences with the clergy, Dr Hackett sent all of his sons to the Jesuit school in Clongos. Francis was the last to go there, and in fact all of his brothers had left the school by this time. Father Bruce Bradley. Now the history of the Hackett's in Clongos is a little peculiar because there was some controversy about the terms on which they were kept in the school. From the ledger it's quite clear that Bat uh, was taken free uh, and then John and Dominic and William came on. But in December 1890, there was little trouble because that was the year of the Parnell split and uh, there was a very vicious by-election fought in Kilkenny. And there's an interesting letter in the Clongos archives from the provincial of the time to the rector, who was Father John Conmee, famous in Joyce's portrait, in which Father Provincial says, this was December the 15th, 1890, I saw a fierce letter from a dignitary in Kilkenny saying the greatest enemy the cause of the church had there at this crisis was Hackett, who had four sons at Clongos for nothing. I know this is false. Now, so said the provincial, and in fact, of course, it was true that there were four Hackett boys in Clongos and they had been charged a pittance, I think four pounds, ten shillings was the, the sum that accumulated over the years for, for the four of them. Uh, but after that letter from the provincial, there seems to have been some change, and Dr. Hackett began paying fees, and eventually he paid £340 for the, for the five boys that were there up to 18, 1894. That was the last payment he made. Clongos in the 1890s was probably one of the most sought-after schools by the Irish Catholic middle class. Uh, it had always been well thought of, or at least in the, in the decades before that, but it really reached its uh, apotheosis under Father James Daly, the famous Father Dolan of Joyce's portrait, who was the prefect of studies and who won uh, numerous exhibitions through driving the students very hard. Francis Hackett doesn't say very much about him, really. He hardly appears in The Green Lion, but that was the background. It was a socially desirable school to be sent to, and uh, it was very satisfactory for the parents because the results were achieved. Hackett is very critical of the Jesuits of the time uh, on two grounds, that they were politically and um, intellectually very prudent or conservative. And I think the Victorian Jesuits probably were both. For Parnellite, Parnellite Hackett coming to Clongos, rather like Parnellite Joyce, 
uh, it wasn't a very congenial environment. I, I'd say there wasn't an awful lot of support for that, that kind of political viewpoint by the, the late 1890s. Uh, and yet there were other Parnellites in the school, there's no doubt about that. And it's very interesting to read uh, a magazine that the boys got out surreptitiously in Clongos uh, around that time, the rhetorician. It's full of very strong Parnellite, viciously anti-clerical sentiment, so that I don't think Francis Hackett was alone in the feelings that he had about that. Uh, intellectually, too, the Jesuits of the time were, were prudent. It was uh, the period after the uh, Vatican Council and papal infallibility, and the Jesuits in the 19th century were theologically very conservative. Um, Hackett himself regrets that uh, he was exposed to what he calls this cruelly un-Jesuitical curriculum, namely the curriculum imposed by the intermediate board, not the kind of uh, curriculum of study the Jesuits might otherwise have pursued. So for a sensitive... Um, literary soul like Francis Hackett it was probably somewhat limiting. Joyce, incidentally, had left Clongold before Francis Hackett had arrived there, and ironically they were never to meet, although he was to review favourably Portrait of an Artist when it was first published in America. His description of life in Clongold takes up the last hundred pages of The Green Line, and he emerged with some literary aspirations, but as a person had become somewhat introspective, with feelings of sexual uncertainty and religious doubt. Troubled by these mental conflicts and faced with little prospect of gaining a career, he became what he later described as argumentative and cantankerous. Family finances did not allow him to be sent to university or to become an apprentice solicitor, and he finally decided to go to America where two of his brothers were already working. His fare was paid by one Darby White, a family friend at the local dispensary. He arrived in New York in the first month of the first year of the new century, with what he later described as six governing passions. A passion for Ireland against the British Empire, a passion for Parnell's Ireland against the Catholic Church, a passion against the British Empire as such, a passion against the Catholic Church as such, a passion for literature and a passion for a red-headed girl. Some of these passions were later to wane, particularly the last one, as the red-headed girl, a cousin of his own and somewhat older, immediately married another man. On his way over on the boat, he decided to leave the church, and partly because of this, he quickly broke away from his relatives in America, although he regularly corresponded with his family in Kilkenny. He was, in fact, all through his life an inveterate letter writer, and kept up a lifelong correspondence with his sister Florence in Kilkenny, who was one year younger than him. The first years in America were ones of profound loneliness. His attempts to break into journalism were unsuccessful, and so he took on a series of menial jobs living in cheap boarding houses. The first literary efforts were unpaid articles which he sent back to Ireland to Arthur Griffith's United Irishman and to Standish O'Grady's All-Ireland Review. He also contributed to the Gale, little monthly that Samuel Richardson, circulation manager of the New York World, published in his spare time. And it was through the Gale that he first met John Quinn, the Irish-American lawyer and politician. John Quinn was then in his thirties, a bachelor, debonair and very wealthy, quite a contrast to the impoverished Hackett who became secretary to his newly founded literary society. They arranged to bring over Jack and W. B. Yeats on a lecture tour and Yeats wondered if he had come from Castle Hackett. In 1906 they also helped Douglas Hyde on his American tour, speaking on the revival of the Irish language, a tour which netted over $60,000. By this time he had moved to Chicago. Again, the job the menial. He got a small break into journalism as a highly unsuccessful crime reporter with Willem Randolph Hurt's sensationalist Chicago American. 
finally a job he wanted, with Tiffany Blake, the literary editor of the Chicago Evening Post. He now moved into and lectured at Hull House, an establishment run by Jane Addams, a remarkable woman who championed the arts, democracy and social ethics, and who drew a wide spectrum of liberal opinion about her. He remained there for a year, and left Hull House a much more confident man. Because of his great writing talent, he quickly gained a journalistic reputation, both in the areas of editorial writing and literary criticism. And when Tiffany Blake left the paper in 1909, he was invited by the editor to start a weekly supplement, the Friday Literary Review. He was still only 26 years old, but it was an immediate success. He edited it for the next four years, working extremely hard to sustain its continuing success. Then suddenly he resigned. His reasons were important in the context of the remainder of his life. He felt that since journalism in Chicago came down to freedom and little money, or money and little freedom, he preferred to get out as he wanted both freedom and money if it were humanly possible. He set off to a remote farm in Wisconsin to write the great work of fiction. But news reached him that his father was seriously ill and so he came back to Ireland briefly in 1912. When it seemed that his father was recovering, he returned to America where he accompanied John Quinn as his secretary to the 1912 Democratic Convention in Baltimore. And, as Quinn revelled in the political intriguing, Francis looked on in bewilderment, while noting with some satisfaction the Catholic Irish of the big immigrant cities of Chicago, Boston and New York doing business behind closed doors with the Protestant and stoutly Orange Irish from Indiana and West Virginia. Out of a job again, he was unexpectedly asked by Herbert Crawley to join the staff of a new weekly magazine, The New Republic, as literary critic at $60 a week. One of his colleagues was Walter Lippmann. The magazine quickly gained a national reputation for the quality of its writing and for its liberal views. And it was here that he met his future wife, Danish-born Sinje Toxwig. She came out of pure farming stock, but my grandfather, who started life as uh, her father, as a shepherd, um, decided to break the mould and go to school and, and become bookish. He ended up, um, around about the turn of the century, as editor of a medium-sized provincial daily, and decided from there to accept an offer to become editor of a Danish-language newspaper to be published in New Jersey, of all places. So um, he left his family, his wife and four kids behind, sailed over there and arrived in Newark, New Jersey, to find that the project had folded and there was no job for him. So uh, the only thing he could do, being a Unitarian, he went to the headquarters of the Unitarian Church, and that happened to be in Troy, New York, and they welcomed him. He didn't speak the language. They welcomed him, taught him English, got him a job grinding lenses in a factory. And after a couple of years, he sent for his family, and they came over. Um, well, my father was 10 when that happened, so it must have been uh, around about 1902 or something of that sort. And they settled in Troy in conditions of abject poverty. Sina worked in a shirt factory. But by dint of much hard work, she managed to get herself to Cornell University and took a degree from there came to New York, started working for Vogue, was referred to the New Republic, which was a very exciting publishing venture full of great minds, and there she met Francis. There is, in fact, a, a volume of unpublished memoirs by Francis Hackett called An American Rainbow, where he rather movingly describes the impression she, she made on him the, from the very first moment he saw her enter the office. And as you know, very shortly afterwards, they, a couple of years later, they got married. In the meantime, Francis had followed closely political developments in Ireland. Although originally a supporter of home rule, he was deeply disturbed by the executions following the 1916 Rising, 
and in May of 1916 he wrote an article in the New Republic explaining the rebellion to American readers and condemning the British government. He followed this up by writing a book called Ireland, A Study in Irish Nationalism, published in 1918 and running into several editions, a book which he had to revise as the developing political situation in Ireland demanded. And in the same year he also published a book of literary criticism called Horizons. Two years after his marriage to Sinje Toxwig, they left on a working holiday, first visiting her native Denmark and then reaching Ireland just as the civil war was underway. They arrived in Cove, booked in at a local hotel late at night, but when they discovered that the bed linen was dirty, they moved out into another hotel. When Francis came back the following morning to collect their luggage, he was accosted by the hotel owner and asked to apologise for the insult offered to the hotel. A somewhat dubious figure in the background wearing a white raincoat speeded their departure, and when they learned that he was the local commandant of the Irish Republican Army and was planning to use his revolver, the feelings of the Hackett's towards the Republican cause became cooler, although apologies for the incident were later made in Dublin. Francis had greatly been impressed by the social system in Denmark, and when he had an opportunity as a visiting journalist to meet Michael Collins in Dublin, he was determined to discuss the Danish social order. In his book, I Chose Denmark, he described the brief meeting thus. The day we met Michael Collins, he strode past us not to loiter where the assassin's bullet could get him, up the stairs three steps at a time. And now the Danish folk high schools, I said earnestly. A smile, a smile in which kindliness, malice, irony and pity mingled for an Olympian instant, as if a man in another world had glanced down and seen a daisy. Folk high schools for the Rob Roy Hotel? Yes, he smiled. The Hackett's returned to America where they decided to go freelance. In 1924, Francis published his first novel, That Nice Young Couple, which received mixed reviews and had a moderate success. One of the characters, an Irish-American, was based on John Quinn, and he used his knowledge of the Baltimore Convention to good effect at the end of the book. But now he embarked on one of the most successful projects of his life, a historical biography of Henry VIII. Although he was to broadcast on several occasions, both in America and England, the only extant recording of Francis Hackett's voice was made by Klaus Toxwig in a non-broadcast situation after his wife's senior's 70th birthday in Denmark in 1961, when he himself was aged 78. In this extract from the interview, he describes the period of the middle twenties, and listening to it, the essence of the man can be clearly gauged. I had a very intelligent publisher in America, and he asked me to do... Uh, preface to Max Birbham's Zuleika Dobson and I did it for a large sum of $35 then he asked me if I'd do a book on some New York topic sensational title that he gave me which didn't fit and he gave me some money I didn't earn it and there I was without a subject and then he said to me why don't you do a book in six months on Henry VIII? I said, that's a very interesting topic. He was a sensational fellow. I know nothing about him. And I'll begin to read a little about him. You see, in Ireland, history was not taught between the uh, beginning of the Reformation up to the French Revolution. The Catholics were afraid that the, the wicked popes would be talked about. The Protestants were afraid that Martin Luther would be 
talked about in a nasty way. So the board, which was divided between Catholics and Protestants equally, decided we leave out all history, <laughs> except Irish and English history, between uh, 1500 and uh, 1790 or whatever it was. So I came to these two characters never having heard about them, knowing nothing about them, absolutely nothing. And my French was uh, sufficiently inadequate for me to take a, a slow reading of this book by Minier, very good book, opened my mind. But of course in six months I hadn't arrived at Henry VIII. <coughs> I was in terrible straits, so I had to begin borrowing money. Well, uh, the first year went by and I had to go to America to give lectures to try and earn enough money to keep on. Then we came back and, well, it went on for five years. We're getting more and more in debt. But I began to find that this universe that I had never dreamt of could be given form in relation to our own experiences of uh, internationalism which came with the First and Second War because we'd come down to the south of France where we were from Geneva, where, which we'd gone to. Uh, I was very much in favor of the League of Nations and wrote a series of articles about it. And uh, as America had refused to join the League, uh, I couldn't sell the articles to any advantage anyway wrote one on Nansen. We had five hours talking to Nansen and so on. And then I had to go to Italy to get a few dollars to interview Mussolini. Uh, well, when I had finished interviewing Mussolini, the $125 I got for the article gave out and we had to stop at Monte Carlo and write to America to say, would you please give another $100 to us for this interview? It was really worth about $10,000 if I had sold it properly because I had 40 minutes with him. Mm -hmm. But it was also instructive for Henry VIII. Mm. He was the head of a state. He was the head of a state who was in very much the same situation that the men in the 16th century had been. Well, history then for me was a correlation between my own experience of politics in America for 25 years and my own experience of citizenship and this uh, break-up of an old civilization at the in 1500. The situation was so similar to our situation that it was extremely vivid to me. Well, Senior and I struggled with this. I trying to get hold of it and trying over and over again. And I sent the first draft to America and the publisher gave it to a reader who sent back word, this book will sell between three or four thousand copies. It uh, is very annoying in many respects and I don't see what public it has. I then had begun to revise it, having got the groundwork in the first draft and send over a second draft which had to be corrected. Of course, because I was still groping. Mm. And then the publisher submitted that little, that scratchy manuscript to the Book of the Month Club and they took it. And all 
we knew about it was we'd never heard of the Book of the Month Club. Well, I knew there was in the waste paper basket that had not been emptied for two months a description of the Book of the Month Club. And I groped in it because Clarence Day had sent it to us. And there we found that it meant turn twelve, fifteen thousand dollars if it was taken, sell sixty, seventy thousand copies. And then a dreadful man came to Ireland to say to me, uh, we know it's been taken by the Book of the Month Club, but would you take a smaller royalty because we'd like to advertise it for the first 20,000 copies? And we didn't know enough to say no, we said. And then the English publisher, uh, we were so poor that we hadn't... Uh, we were desperately looking for a penny I went up to Paris to see Jonathan Cape, and he said, Oh, I'm very sorry, but uh, my contract is with uh, Jonathan Cape, and this 50 pounds that you ask for, I'll have to consult with him about it. I'm not sure I could give it to you. So then when the book was published in America and taken by the Book of Monday Club, he wrote and said, Let me have a copy at once. I said, Oh, no, your contract is with uh, <laughs> Mr. Liverite, and I think if you write to America, he might send you a copy. <laughs> The biography of Henry VIII was an ideal vehicle for Francis, and he combined his talents for writing both history and fiction to produce a classic of its kind, the first of the popular historical biographies, a book which was avidly read by all classes in society. So, quite suddenly, he was famous. The influential English critic Leonard Wolfe, husband of Virginia Wolfe, praised it highly, and Francis was much sought after in English literary circles. On the strength of its success, the hackers decided to settle in Ireland. They now were at last financially independent. A telegram which Francis sent to his sister Florence in Kilkenny simply said, Book Club takes Henry £2,000 straight off. They now rented Kiladrinan House in County Wicklow. It was set in its own grounds, unfurnished, and they paid a yearly rent of £120. Francis settled down to work on a new historical biography, Francis I. But it was clear also that they were enjoying the trappings of their newly found wealth. Beryl Cooper, now Mrs Whitworth, whose family had rented Kiladrinan House, has vivid memories of the Hackett's at the time. Well, they often came to see my parents and we always had a very enjoyable, witty time when they were here because they, they both enjoyed a joke. Certainly he did. And uh, my father and he used to have many happy times yarning together. But when Francis Hackett started to work, he cut himself off very much from any form of social life. And would uh, we would see him walking. He was a great man to walk. He would be walking along the roads, usually with a stick behind his shoulders, bracing himself up and his head down, bent in thought, planning for this next book. She was very fond of the garden and very keen about the house and uh, I can remember when they wanted to do up the house they went to Paris specially to choose the wallpapers and always the sort of grand paper that you at that time would not have found in Dublin. But on one occasion the dining room was done up and uh, they, when it was finished they went off for a trip to London and came back again, found that they hated the paper and had it all torn off again. 
and more was brought from Paris till it was to their satisfaction. They were very particular. He always said that when he was paid, uh, he spent well and enjoyed what he had earned. And they had a jolly good time. They always went off for a spree when any book was finished. Yes, I think when, uh, certainly when Francis I was finished and published, uh, they thought there was time they had a good holiday. Uh, so they went for a spree abroad. I can't remember. Well, I know they went to London to have a good time. And when my father asked, how do you manage about your expenses and what on earth, how do you manage to cope with all the good times? And he said, well, I make a, a list of approximately what my expenses may be, and then I double it, and then we know we'll have a good time. Then there were the bad times, with all the not-so-good times, when he said, I, I, uh, I spend, when I have money, I spend well, and then we've got to go easy for the rest of the time. They now also enjoyed a very active social life, and visitors to Kiladrinan included Oliver St. John Gogarty, Professor Seamus Delargy, Mr. and Mrs. Sean O'Fuelon, Seamus and Stella O'Sullivan, Hilton Edwards, Austin Clark, Frank O'Connor and Bethel and Gertrude Solomons. The famous Bloomsbury figure Lady Otline Morell and her husband Philip also came over from London to visit them. The newly published biography Francis I did not achieve the same success as Henry VIII and so he changed course and embarked on a different writing project. For many years he had been fitfully writing his own reminiscences but could not make up his mind as to whether he should write them as straight memoirs or to fictionalise them in the form of a novel. Now he took the plunge and decided to write not one but a trilogy of novels based on his memoirs beginning with his boyhood in Kilkenny, the first novel ending with his departure to America. He called the first novel The Green Line, subtitled A Novel of Youth. At the same time his wife Signe had started to work on a novel of her own, having had a great success with the biography of her fellow countryman Hans Christian Andersen, which was published in 1933. Her novel was called Eve's Doctor, and in addition to doing some research work in the Presbyterian Hospital in New York, she had sought the advice and help of Oliver St. John Gogarty, and especially the well-known Dublin gynaecologist Bethel Solomons. Meanwhile, The Green Line was published in 1936. Generally it received good, if unenthusiastic, reviews, but an unexpected shock was in store for Francis at the hands of the censorship board, who banned it on the grounds of indecency and obscenity. It was about this time that James Delahanty first met Francis in Kilkenny. I became very friendly with Florence, who lived at that time in number 20 Patrick Street. I was still, of course, a schoolboy, but she, she was accustomed to sit in a window, which ground floor window which looked onto the street and she was very familiar with us spies passing up and down. Florence decided she was starting a literary society. She was very friendly with Lady Desert, uh, who was a senator and uh, through Lady Desert, Desmond Fitzgerald, the father of our present Taoiseach, and uh, I met those people in Florence's house with, in this literary society which she formed which just consisted of me really I think and then uh, in this our friendship kind of as far as it was um, between her and me grew until uh, and she used to talk greatly of course about Francis and he had come back to live in Ireland and he was writing this novel about Kilkenny and then in 1935 
she asked me to come down to meet Francis, whom I hadn't met before, uh, in number 20, in order to have tea. And I went, I was very excited at this because I was rather interested in reading, and of course I'd read Francis, uh, Henry VIII, which had come out. And actually I'd, I'd, um, I'd bought uh, The Green Lion, which had just been published some short time before, and had read it. And I went along very excited with these two books to be autographed by the great author and met Francis, um, of quiet, very pleasantly mannered man, rimless glasses, twinkling eyes, I remember. And we talked a great deal about the... Um, literary things. Our next meeting then, I was asked down again for tea, and this was the day after the announcement had appeared in the Irish Times of the banning of his novel about Kilkenny, The Green Lion. And it's one of my abiding memories of the, the pain in his voice and in his whole expression uh, about what had been done to him as a, a writer who had come back from America to to the new Ireland that he hoped to see. To make matters worse, Sinje's novel, Eve's Doctor, published around the same time, was also banned, and, as a mark of protest, they decided to leave Ireland. Before leaving, however, Francis wrote a very trenchant article in Seamus O'Sullivan's Dublin magazine on the subject of censorship, called A Muzzle Made in Ireland. Having castigated both the Cosgrave and de Valera governments, for the introduction and setting up of the censorship board, he was equally critical of the role of the church. He wrote, Under guise of hunting out obscenity and indecency, the Catholic Church is giving the lie to every nationalist who, like myself, insisted day in and day out that home rule would not mean Rome rule. Home rule, through the action of the censorship board, does mean Rome rule. My green line, I venture to think, is a case in point. It has been reviewed on every continent since it was published and nowhere has it been said to be obscene so far as I have learned. The Catholic librarian of a great Catholic university in the United States could not find anything to take exception to. I have just heard that one school in the United States asks its pupils to read it during vacation. Yet, in this country it has been banned, to the best of my belief, because it speaks candidly of the Jesuit system of education and of the gross intolerance of the clergy in the Parnell era, with its spiritual consequences to one youth in particular. The reasons for calling it indecent come, in my opinion, from a party pre so outrageous as to be beyond argument. The censorship law is repugnant to every instinct of a free man, ignorant in its conception, ridiculous in its method, odious in its fruits, bringing the name of self-governing Irishmen into contempt wherever the freedom of literature is understood, and revealing the model and immaturity of our statecraft. In his book I Chose Denmark, published in 1940, he expands on the theme of his disillusionment with Ireland. For 20 years he had in America written, argued and harangued about Irish freedom. His nationalism, however, was not, he argued, that of a political party, and he had been alarmed when he discovered that Ireland's new nationalism made for what he described a high and dangerous explosive when it was mixed with nationality, and that when nationality became the vested interest of a political party, and once this party monopolised it, you have the post-war nationalism, which is fascism. Fascism, he argued, had begun in Ireland when Edward Carson opted out of the democratic process, 
and that while Ireland was never fascist in the sense that it broke down Parliament, it had nevertheless invented a great number of vital lies that were flattering to the national ego rather than the national being, and that that had imposed mental prohibition. And so, having sold all their effects and possessions, they left Ireland on October the 6th, 1937, the anniversary of Parnell's death, a victim, as he said, of poisoned nationalism. But were there other factors involved? At one stage he had promised Signe that they would live in Denmark when he was 60, which would have been six years later. There were rumours also that he had lost a lot of money in America through unwise investments. Was the upkeep of Kiladrinan proving to be too much of a financial liability? Was Ireland too much of a backwater to two liberal and restless minds? There is no doubt that Ireland in the mid-thirties was not in any sense an ideal abode for a writer. And so they went to live in Sinja's Denmark. Klaus Toxvig remembers their arrival. They got a little flat down in a suburb of Copenhagen, north of Copenhagen, called Hellerup. It uh, features, uh, in those days there was a film studio there. It was an area for reasonably well-to-do people. It had a little harbour, which they loved. They loved watching the water from their, their uh, balcony. And they settled down to, to their usual work routine and also to, to try and explore. Francis was, as always, intensely curious and wanted to know what everything was, what everything meant. Uh, he never learnt Danish to speak, but he could read it, certainly. And uh, um, they were also with family, which, which uh, to them was important. Um, for us kids in, in those years, I must have been about eight years old when they came back, um, they were the great heroes and, and to be looked at with something approaching awe because my father owed them a tremendous debt of gratitude. When they worked for the New Republic, they pulled him through a, a bout of tuberculosis and sent him to a sanatorium and, he never, and also to art school, and he never, ever forgot that for the rest of his life. Sien and Francis were um, the shining lights. Francis now wrote his third historical novel, Anne Boleyn, and when a dramatisation of the novel was mooted in New York, they left for America in December of 1939. The German occupation of Denmark prevented their return, so they rented a house in Martha's Vineyard, where Francis began to work on his last novel, The Senator's Last Night, which was published in 1943, the theme of which was that of a politician corrupted by power. In 1945, he became literary critic of the New York Times for a year, and when they returned to Copenhagen after the war, he edited a collection of his own reviews called Judging Books. In the 1950s, he visited his sister Florence in Kilkenny on a few occasions, but he lived out the rest of his life in frugal comfort with his wife Sinje and the Toxvig's family. Talking to him was always stimulating because he was all forever querying. This, this curiosity of his would never sit still. Uh, you could you could tell him something that had happened that was of interest to you and he would say isn't that interesting and then he would start probing uh, he, he never gave advice um, he uh, would engineer his questions in such a manner that what whatever advice there was 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 in the question and never in an, in an assertive way um, to spend an evening with him was was uh, always a joy because Everything under the sun was discussable and permissible, and it was uh, um, something greatly to be looked forward to, to go out there. And my brother stayed with him on occasion and has, has very fond memories of, of, of the long working days and, and, and then the, the companion, companionable evenings when you really sat down and talked. At the beginning of 1962, on the eve of his 79th birthday, he wrote to his sister Florence. He had been suffering from angina. 
I'll be 79 tomorrow, so you and I are nearing the Arctic zone and the permanent deep freeze, unless we are invited to the heavenly oasis. Sinja has planned a birthday party for me, but I'm not recharged enough as of yet. Your making your will makes me decide that we'll have to visit Kilkenny very soon to have a good look at you, but I realise that you have the vitality of nine Kilkenny cats in spite of your parting with your unworldly goods. P.S. I can't tell you how much I feel about your will. It gave me a full sense of happiness that we have held together always. Francis Hackett died three months later, in April of 1962. He is buried in the country of his adoption. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.